Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. China's 20th Communist Party Congress is set to conclude soon and with President Xi Jinping expected to secure a historical third term, we welcome special guest Lynette Ong to the program who will help us understand the significance of this event and what it means economically and politically for China. Ms. Ong is a professor of political science at the University of Toronto, author and China subject matter expert. Ms. Ong and host Pamela Ritchie look further into the president's words and the implications behind this historic Congress. The president touched upon several key matters, including the country's zero COVID policy, the state of their economy and relations between Taiwan and the West. Ms. Ong says China's president is putting an emphasis on the economy to foster that stronger security both domestically and internationally. She says if we find a trade-off between economic and security policy that is as great as this one, it will entail de-emphasizing the economy, with zero COVID being the potential source of tension in Taiwan. Today's podcast was recorded on October 19, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Lynette, I'd like to begin with the most recent. There's a lot within China's economy that we'd love you to comment on. But what did you notice most strikingly that showed difference in the opening remarks to this Congress over the weekend? Right. So several things, I think, to note about um, the opening remarks of Congress. First is you know, people have done a word count. The number of times that he has mentioned the word security, anxion, far exceed that of the economy, which is very unusual in China's context because it's the country and the party that traditionally built its legitimacy on economic growth. But he's moving away that emphasis on the on, on economy, on fostering better and stronger security domestically and internationally. So if we see there's a trade-off, to the extent that there's a trade-off between security policies and economic policies, which I think there are many, many trade-offs, this means de-emphasizing the economy, zero COVID being, being one, uh, potential you know tension point in Taiwan, and keeping its door close to to foreign investment and continued uh, emphasis on social and social stability maintenance. It's very interesting. You've you've written not too long ago about sort of what you want to look for within this Congress, within the meeting itself. One of the points that you made was really figuring out who the players are. You know, is it just rearranging right. the deck chairs, if you will, or, or are there new right. people coming in to new positions and, you know, what that means? What do you expect? So, you know, the Chinese Communist Party has many, many members, millions of them, but key seven people really constitute the upper echelons of power. So these are the seven people who sit in the Politburo Standing Committee. 
in the previous administration, uh, five out of the seven people are sea loyalists. Two of them are not. And one of them is Premier Li Keqiang, whose power has really been weakened and eclipsed by sea. And we expect more or less the same made up. If there's any change, it could signal that C has managed to consolidate power further. If, you know, let's say if seven out of seven are OC loyalists. But generally, we would expect uh, at least one or two people are from the rival faction just for him to foster the image that, you know, he is also interested in party unity, not just consolidation of power. So there's actually policy implications. If we get a very liberal person, which we wouldn't expect someone to come in, if we get a liberal person, someone who is who is Western educated, we might see you know the the rejuvenation, reinvigoration of liberal economic reform, which has been you know almost dead for the last ten years or so. But that sort of scenario is quite unlikely. In speaking with you about perhaps new individuals, the difference in tone on the economy. There's a shift that you've pointed out in your research, moving from leaders within China who have sort of been sharing the spoils, I think is the word that you used, or the idea of kind of sharing the money that's been made in the economy to something a bit different. Can you explain that? Sure. So if if, if you think about how the Chinese Communist Party has been able to buy support among the elite politicians, so people have become very wealthy, right? Million, millionaire within the uh, decade after reform and opening, which created e- enormous economic opportunities. And these people with backdoor access to government contracts, for instance. So it's a system that I would like to think is is about spoil sharing. Top leaders share spoils, and that sort of spoil sharing is the glue that holds the system together for a long time. But when Xi Jinping came to power 10 years ago, the first thing he did was to launch a very ambitious anti-corruption campaign, which arrested thousands of, of people, many of them in a rival faction, which makes it uh, really a campaign that, that is trying to get to get rid of his enemies. But I think what that, that campaign did was it actually also dissolved the glue that holds the system together. Because people can't do mutual reciprocity and engage in projects that would benefit each other anymore. So what has replaced that sort of foundation of unity is really one of rule by fear. People are loyal to sea, not because they can get rich under sea, but people are afraid that they might get punished and lose their position and get their relatives and sons and daughters into trouble if they are disloyal to see. So you can imagine it has implication on economic policies. People be, local officials become overzealous. When you implement zero COVID, people will use all sorts of measures, even unsensible measures, in order to get things done because they are overcautious. So that's and, a really interesting yeah. point because, you know, there are lots of questions about the COVID zero policy and, and I don't know if you have the answers to all of them, but, but just that idea that so much of it has come at the local level because perhaps local officials are, are so worried about, you know, having the most number of COVID numbers in their region, for instance. Just, just explain that a bit more if you would. Right. So as I ex- explained in my most recent book, Outsourcing uh, Repression, very ambitious everyday policies such as COVID really draws on grassroots volunteers. So these people do not necessarily are not necessarily affiliated with the state, but they believe in what the government does. 
especially at the beginning of COVID, right before the major resistance in Shanghai. So people volunteering their labor, taking temperatures of each resident five times a day, administering various tests and so on. People do believe that they are actually contributing to public good, but only up to a certain point. When things become nonsensible, they, they think this is not just government going, going crazy over stability rather than protecting people's lives. You start to get resistance and uh, people start to question that. And that sort of thing has widespread society implications. I mean, I, I guess the follow-up question to that is, I mean, have people resisted? There have been some pockets of resistance. And of course, you know, any sort of resistance is challenging and is risky in China. So people have taken their resistance, a lot of them, taken it online. And even with pervasive online censorship, we sometimes see, you know, posts that openly challenge the regime about why is this policy in place. I can't go to hospitals even though my father is terribly sick because he couldn't produce a, a zero COVID, um, he couldn't pr- uh, produce a vaccine certificate or or, or negative test. Uh, so people have been denied medical care. Some people have actually died because and and that also daily inconveniences because of zero COVID. There has been pockets of resistance. And it, it really affects the economy. And that's let, sort of fan, one of the areas that you focus on a lot is the property sector. The property sector is also very tied up in the in the various levels of government in terms of the development of properties. And we, we know that there have been a piling up of debts that are connected to the property sector. Some think it's been rings fenced to an extent. Can you sort of take us through how actually how much of a cliff it, it is? I mean, do, what do you think? Sure. So, pop, so property and real estate related sector account for about 40% of China's GDP. So you can imagine how important it is. So in a way, we can think about it as a value chain or a musical chair. A lot of people buy properties pre-construction. And unlike those in Toronto or in Canada, they would pay almost 100%, even before they get their properties. And the developers, once they get the money, can use the money to go and invest in new pro- new projects. So in a way, they are taking money before they could give them any property rights or any apartment, and then use the money to do something else, right? So that is that sort of game is fine, as long as the economy is growing and the music is playing. But once the music stops, because of economic slowdown, changes in external environment, see cracking down on property sector. Music stops a lot of developers, some of them very well-known, you thought they are very strong financially, have really gotten into trouble. And you know, A owes B money, property sector developers owe construction companies money, construction companies owe migrant workers money, and local government in turn owes developer money. So once uh, someone in along the value chain is in trouble, it affects everyone in the economy. How, what is the end game is, no one really knows, but I don't think we will see actually a crisis as such in the next couple of years, because I think the party has control over a lot of large state-owned enterprises hmm. that are developers. They, were, they will be forced, I think, to absorb the debt of private companies. But that has to come at a cost. Once company is, has absorbed all the debt, they can't grow as vibrantly anymore. So we would expect, you know, 
significant economic slowdown over the next decade. And some people have said around 3% uh, would be quite lucky. So the the debt would be absorbed at the local level, meaning it would be domestic and not, I mean, some of the debt is funded in US dollars, a significant amount, as I understand. Can, can you comment on that? Yeah, no, most of the debt is domestic in orientation because these are money really from the pockets of households of individuals from their savings. So it's really from one part of domestic economy to another part, a transfer between households to companies that are not efficient. So we'll we'll come back to the to the real estate and property market as well. But you, just when you mention what a large piece of the G, of the GDP of the growth that it is, does more importance get looked at within the equity markets? In fact, I mean, is, are the equity markets a place to look for other forms of of growth of of wealth accruement? How, how do you see that? So you know, not an equity analyst, but I. W- I would imagine it has implications, is that it has sectoral implications. I think this is the, the time to shy away from industries and sectors that are reliant to varying on to varying degree on construction. So people who supply raw materials to construction, wooden products, you know, irons and down the value chain, any sort of industry, you know, real estate management, property management, that is also very much related to property and, and that sector. I think they are into a lot of trouble because what has happened is there has been, I think, a significant structural shift. There's a significant decline and that decline has been very, very abrupt. So it's about how do you adjust your portfolio quickly enough to, I think, minimize losses. Do you see signs that China's relationship with Russia has deteriorated? How how would you comment on that? Yeah, you know, Russia, you know, China has an interesting relationship with with Russia. President Xi has said that, you know, Russia is a friend. They have it's a friendship without any condition. This is what they need they need to say. Otherwise, you know, China seems very isolated. Because in 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 the current geopolitical climate, I think China has been increasingly isolated with the US Indo-Pacific strategy and that from Canada. It seems that we want to to make friends in Indo-Pacific and trying to isolate China. So China has to be aligning itself with someone else. And Russia is definitely a natural partner because of ideological values. And, but, and the commodities it can provide for China? Energy, they are, they are, they are implications for, for energy prices. China borders a lot of uh, countries in that, in that region. So if geopolitically that uh, region becomes unstable, it will have, you know, people might be flowing in. They might, it has a lot of Im, of implications on border security of China. But China is not in a way unprepared. I think it has, it is involved in a lot of regional architectural, regional arrangement to really address those, those issues if really they do arise. Let's do, in fact, go ahead and, and talk about the U.S. relationship. This, this particular and you know how it relates to the speech that we saw at the opening of the Congress as well. But this question is is taking a look at U.S. sanctions. The significant has it had a significant impact, or are they a source of concern? I mean, certainly the demonstration of the types of sanctions that can be put on Russia, I think, have worried countries around the world. What what that could do is is it fair to say that 
China also is concerned about the way that looks and the overall trade tensions with the U.S.? Yeah, yes. Um, But I think China has also been prepared for that for at least a decade. China has been trying to build uh, high-tech industries, and they're aware that a lot of semiconductors are coming from the United States and from Taiwan, and they are not their friends. So there has been they have been trying to build up their own capacities in that in that sector. There's also been some black market of semiconductors going on, from what I understand. But this is something that requires very talented, very high skilled labor force, and not uh, an industry that you can build over time. So I think in in a sense there are a couple of things to say. China is aware that the relationship with the U.S. is not good and some of its sectors might be in trouble, then they are trying their best to diversify the sources of supply. But it also tells you how entwined the East and the West economy is. So so this is not another Cold War. China is also well aware that despite all the rhetoric, they cannot do economic decoupling 100%. I'm sorry, I didn't interrupt you. I didn't mean to interrupt you so much. Did you say it's not another Cold War? This is not another Cold War because there's too much entwinement in economic relationship between China and the West. Uh, We can't just draw a line on the sand and say that we want to decouple. Uh, A lot of businesses have got, you know, value chain across the the Pacific. It is really not as easy as uh, it could be done. That's so interesting because it's not what the headlines say sometimes, but it's obviously an intertwining economies is is good for the peace side of things. Unless you want to close down all your high-tech businesses, which I don't think, you know, presidency is that silly enough. It's so ill-informed enough to make that sort of decision. Do you see China making, you mentioned alliances, and maybe there's isolation that's felt, but do you see stronger alliances? Um, But even further afield, do you see other types of alliances that China is making? Right. So with this Belt and Road Initiative, I think the undertone of that is really to buy friends and to isolate Taiwan in the process. But, you know, it hasn't been that successful. It has been, it has received a lot of pushback from democracies such as Australia, Canada, but also from non-democracies. Because of the debt issue, you know, money has been lent to them at very high interest rates. But the intrinsic feature of Chinese foreign investment overseas is a lot of that is actually non-transparent, negotiated with the elite politicians. And the elite politicians in these non-democracies or semi-democracies, there's a lot of corruption going on. And they don't tell people about it. And once there's a change in government, they go dig up the dirt and it gets you know local politicians into trouble and, and bring very bad press to Chinese investors. So various pushback, and I think this is actually will be a lasting legacy of Xi's uh, very ambitious uh, uh, BRI projects that things hasn't really gone as smoothly as he has imagined. Tell us a little bit about the demographic story in China. I think, it, as I understand it, is, it is more of an aging population than it was. Where, where do you see the birth rate? Can you comment on that? So aging population is a huge problem. I would probably say the number one constraint in terms of its economic growth. Regardless of anything else, you know, people are rapidly aging, even though the government has been trying to reverse its one-child policy, which has become way too successful. And the reversal came way too late. 
So people are starting to have second child, but it takes a long time for that policies really to bear fruit. So that on the one hand, I think your clients who are specializing in healthcare or other sectors that cater for aging population, that sector is booming. Even tourism of a particular kind that, that cater to all people is, boom, is booming. But this younger population, they are actually unemployment rate for, for the youth has been growing to about 20%. Urban unemployment rate is, is also growing. These young people are getting restless. Uh, they are involving in crime in, in increasingly so. So it has economic as well as uh, social implications. When you say types of tourism that, that cater to those perhaps are retired, is I mean, are we talking cruises? Are we talking, what, what do you mean yes, by that? We are, we are talking cruises. We are talking about, you know, Chinese large tour buses that bring aunties and uncles around to, you know, places where they can drink tea and climb some hills. That sort of tourism uh, pre-pandemic was booming. I don't know about you, but personally, I, I it took a little while when things reopened to to sort of completely come out of the the bubble that we'd created in COVID. Um, it's been longer for much of the Chinese population. What, what do you see on that front? I mean, I guess stock markets will react the way they react to that. But what do you personally think about that? Will it take some time? Uh, yes, I think it will take a long time because while the rest of the world is get, is moving on with COVID, you know, with vaccination and trying to live with COVID, I think the Chinese population is still very, very risk averse. I think by and large, people do believe in zero COVID despite the resistance, right? People do believe that it is the, the, the state, the, the Chinese party has, the Chinese Communist Party has the capacity to save people's lives. And once you have that mindset, I think I think people become very risk averse. They do not want to travel. They do not want to interact with the outside world. You know, retail will go down. Foreign investment investors coming in, that sort of tourism, international tourism, will slow down. No one really see any opening in the next six, twelve, and even eighteen months. We actually do not know what the next sign is. So okay. six months ago, if you ask people, they would say after the 10th Party Congress, I think it will open up because it's a very politically sensitive time. But right now, if you take a straw poll among China observers, I'm not sure what sign people are looking for. Um, I think presidency is very fixated on stability. And zero COVID is not a public health issue. It's a, it's a stability issue. It's a stability issue for a security-obsessed Chinese Communist Party. So do you think one of the the areas that certainly was was getting an awful lot of attention was the electrification of of the world China's electric car industry was an area that looked like it had a very bright future what of the decarbonization plans the green targets that China has had So the environment and the energy sector is not something that I specialize in but my general uh, knowledge is China over the last 20 years has made enormous investment in energy saving in green tech for two reasons, because they realize that they are actually industrializing, so they need a lot of energy. So energy self-sufficiency, like grain self-sufficiency, is a security policy, something that the regime who cares about its durability is fixated on. And number two, green technology has been promoted like 
other industrial policies. This is a sector that they see tremendous growth in. So there has been active state subsidies to, in, to invest in this sector. But from what I understand, in the last 10 years ago, uh, also there has been too much investment because central government gives incentives to local governments to invest in those industries. And like all policies in China is often over this overzealous implementation. So they would hook up, you know, solar panel because to show, to show that they have done their jobs, but those solar panels are not actually put into proper use. So a lot of investment, but there's also a lot of lack of efficiency. That's very interesting. So it's, it's been fascinating to get your thoughts on various sectors. Is there, is there anything that we haven't really talked about on the property front? You must have so much detail that you could share with us. What, what do you think is sort of the best thing to, to let investors know about this industry? I mean, it, it, I guess they have to wait for a little while on this front, but what might... I think about, you know, people still need housing, even even though that is that has slowed down significantly. I would think about, you know, efficient use of resources that, that goes into that sector. Something that I would have to think more about, you know, because I don't think about the downstream effects of, of what is happening at the macro level. But alternative channels of resources that allow the industry to grow and to meet, you know, I think the citizens' demand without drawing on so much of the existing resources. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.